0: mama what's the podcast well it's when a group of men love their opinions very much
1: welcome back to feminist talk religion My name is Sarah Emanuel, and in this episode, I will be interviewing my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Nikki Ganinder Singh, on her experiences in both colonial India and the United States, as well as her expertise in Sikhism, feminism, and liberation. Dr. Singh is Crawford Family Professor of Religion at Colby College in Waterville, Maine, where she chairs the Department of Religious Studies. Her areas of expertise include Sikhism, Eastern sexuality, Indian women's issues, major religions of Northern India, role of women in religious literature, literary analysis of scripture, and religious themes in Western literature. Dr. Singh has published extensively in the field of Sikhism and has lectured widely in North America, England, France, India, and Singapore and her views have been aired on television and radio in America, Canada, Bangladesh, Australia, Ireland, and India. I hope wherever you are listening, you can join in with me in giving her our warmest welcome. Nikki Singh, it is so good to see you. It is so good to have you here. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Welcome to Feminist Talk Religion.
0: How are you? How are you doing? Very well, thank you, Sarah. And it's lovely to be meeting with you and discussing things that are very close to our hearts, to both our hearts. Been quite well. It's a lovely warm day in Maine. Quite a change. Indian summer, as they say. So we're enjoying it. And I'm looking forward to our conversation.
1: Good, good. I sent you a few questions to think about in advance, but I'm going to uh, pull a fast one here. I don't think either of us were expecting to be meeting just hours after learning uh, that Joe Biden is president-elect and Kamala Harris is vice president-elect. We are speaking on November 8th, 2020. We heard the news on November 7th. How are you feeling? Are, has anything changed within you since hearing this news? I am absolutely elated.
0: We, we are talking about liberation. It was, I was so anxious for several days, and it was just a wonderful moment to kind of finally, finally Realize we are back on track. This is the America I came to. And what Biden said, you know, America is possibilities that full of possibilities. And that somehow had become very close, very bordered, boundaried, walled. And I'm glad to have that. And to have Kamla. What more could one want? You know, fellow Indian and African American and you know, with all her wonderful heritage and American and just a fantastic uh, speaker and a great role model for us all. Yes,
1: yes, 100%. Well, you said, you know, that hearing uh, Joe Biden speak reminded you of the hopes that you had um, from when you came to the United States. So can you tell us a little bit about your own journey as someone from India Um, deciding to come to the U.S. Was it of your own volition? What what brought you here? Yes, indeed. It was my own volition. And actually, my parents
0: had been to Cambridge. My father had come as a visiting professor at Harvard, and they had both come, and I was in my school in India. It was a day school. It was a Catholic school. And my Reverend mother got special permission from Rome to have a non-Christian stay at the convent. So I stayed with them and while my parents were in America, I was at the school as uh, I stayed in the convent and of course went to the day school. And then when they came back, I heard so many things that I'd been hearing about America and my parents had sent me some Disney World Cups, you know, where you can sit in. And so those kind of things were so alive in my mind and I wanted to come to America. And so I applied to a girl's school in Virginia, Stuart Hall. And they accepted me and lo and behold, here I am. So that was so kind of unusual as of what I could not believe, Sarah, that I was in America. I still have that scene sitting by the windowsill in Stanton, Virginia, thinking I am in America. And it was, it was quite, quite a transformative experience for me because I was the only South Asian, only kind of brown in that part of the world. This is, we are talking about 1972, but everybody was very nice. You know, I felt the academics is what I fell in love with. Mm -hmm. And growing up in India, post-colonial India in the sixties, it was kind of a false consciousness. You know, I wanted to study Western philosophy and do English literature. And when I came here, in America, I took a course on the American transcendentalists and that kind of woke me up. And we were reading uh, Walt Whitman's poem, A Passage to India. What does India mean? Who am I? So all those kind of questions, you know, about my identity and so forth made me who I am. So that was, you know, coming to America was very crucial. And also America, you could do anything. I could go anywhere. I could take any course. So going to college and being able to take religion and philosophy and astronomy and, you know, so all those possibilities, those openings were there and I've always enjoyed it.
1: Wow. That story that you just shared is so rich and I feel like we can follow, you know, threads in all sorts of different directions. Um, But I I just like to get a little bit of, of context. So you're, you're born in India. Where specifically in India were you northern born? Part, uh, northern part of India,
0: Punjab. So it's in the foothills of the Himalayas, uh, about 150 miles north of Delhi. It's a place called Patiala. This mm-hmm. was the city where I grew up. Um, and my father was the first chairman of the first department of religious studies. So India has had a very rich tradition of religions but the academic study of religion really began in 1969 so there was a department there for the study of world religions and it was built in the form of a ship so they had five different sails hinduism christianity jainism sikhism and there was a hinduism and there was a big seminar room in the middle and there were cubicles for scholars to study and meditation rooms for each of the different traditions. And then there was a flame on top symbolizing that all the traditions are going to the same goal. And that was quite a remarkable place. And my dad was sharing it. And I recall scholars coming from all over the world, you know, conferences mm-hmm. being held. It was a very vibrant uh, place for the study of religion. So I met, you know, Lots of faculty, Uh, for example, Wilfred Cantwell-Smith came over, he and his wife uh, came to a conference there, and many others, John Carman, as far as I recall. So it it was, you know, so I met all these people, you know, I was a youngster, tiny little talk, but it was quite, uh, did something, you know, the study of religion. I wanted to go into it, learn more about it.
1: Mm. Mm -hmm. And
0: and in those days, there were not, Patiala was a dinky little town. We did not have any hotels like we do in modern times. So people often stayed with us, with my family. And it was during that time, there was a student, student of Buddhism from Columbia University who came and she was staying with us. And she would tell me about these schools in America where she had gone and one of them was Stuart Hall and I applied and I got in. So that was my kind of, you know, and my parents could not say no. And which was very nice of them because, you know, being a young girl, you know, that's not what you do. You don't let a 14 year old go to America, but my parents took a big chance and they did send me and I'm very, very grateful to them for that.
1: Wow. Wow. So born in India in the Northern area, really raised within this academic culture. And then you go to Rome for school.
0: That was in Patiala. The special permission came from Rome.
1: Oh, I see. I see. Okay. I thought I I heard you went to Rome when your dad was at Columbia. She got special permission from
0: Rome to stay in Patiala in that school, uh, Lady of Fatima Convent School. Wow. So what ages were you in
1: that school? I was there till I came to America. Till 14, wow. or, yeah. 14 years old so then you went to this women's school in Virginia for high school yes I did finish my high school and then I went to Wellesley okay okay, so okay. Well. wow so can you say more about this false consciousness this connection or false connection with quote-unquote western thinking what can you say more about that Sure, that was in India. You
0: know, we kind of dressed up in Western clothes. We spoke English and my poor granny, you know, we all hi, hi. Hi is kind of a word where when somebody dies, you know, hi, hi, that's kind of sighing, you know. But we were trying to be modern and kind of being Western. Mm-hmm. And I did not realize my Indian roots till I came. I did not appreciate them till I came to. And that's, that's my regret. Why didn't I study Sanskrit? Why did I not study my Punjabi language? We spoke, of course, we were very comfortable speaking, but the academic study was really English was the medium of instruction. And we went to these English speaking medium schools. Those are my regrets. You know, why did I not get more of -hmm. India? And I only realized it when I came to Stuart Hall, when I came to America.
1: So, can you explain that that feeling when you got here of? I mean it, it sort of seems like you could have gone in a different direction of you know renouncing even more, and yet you came here and you saw that to use your own words, you were one of the only you know brown folks within Virginia, and you you embraced it so what what was that like That's a really good question, Sarah. Um, I think I got a
0: lot of love and something from from my friends and my teachers, or maybe America, you know, it. I never felt I had to change. Actually, I became more Indian coming to Stuart Hall. I never wore Indian outfits. But at school, we had to dress up for dinner, and I chose to wear my Indian outfits, proudly. And I think there was some kind of validation or affirmation that I received from my young friends. I mean, we are teenagers, and nobody, you know, they really embraced me with open arms for who I was. I was different. And that difference, whatever was it was, I wanted to deepen it more. And, 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 and India was so far away. In those days, there were no Skypes. We couldn't be sitting and zooming, you know. So it was those blue aerograms that came from my parents every week or two weeks. And I would long for that. I was horribly homesick. Mm -hmm. But made me appreciate the Punjab even more, made me appreciate my mother tongue even more. There was mm-hmm. nobody to speak it with, nobody. Right. Right. So that's when, and that's why I went into translations and so forth, because I wanted to, you know, I left it all behind, had I been older. And if I'd had enough of, uh, you know, my culture, and it, it's like, I came at that age where I did not have enough and I longed for it. Mm-hmm. And that's why India became so important to me. And now to be able to share that with my students and in my writing, it's the most fulfilling, fulfilling life I lead. I really feel
1: very, very
0: blessed, so mm-hmm. to say.
1: Yeah, I love that. I, I certainly understand it. It, it. It's so interesting because, you know, as a New Testament scholar, I have felt that in being in New Testament as a Jew who is amongst non-Jews doing Jesus things all the time, it has actually made me assert my Jewishness so much more. It's sort of like when you're like, this is, I I don't even know how to describe it. It's like you feel your otherness, but you want to just push it against the center and be like, there's, there's more here. There's more to be said. I'm bringing something that needs to be valued and seen and heard. And, you know, there's something about it. So right. So right. And, and, um,
0: and I think there's also, in my case, because I started working on my own tradition here, but it was really America that made me see what that own is, and I think I got a little lot of encouragement i'm I'm a youngster, and yet people would invite me to different churches to give yeah. a little talk, and they would give me brownies for giving me giving a talk, or you know just just a little kid coming over and just to they kind of reinforce that, you know yeah,
1: yeah. Did you ever feel, um, you know, tokenized for being taken in and and to give these talks? Or I you know, said I somehow never, I never let my mind go that way. Mm-hmm. I
0: think I just, oh they want to know about me. I will tell them. I got more and more enthusiastic, and I'm sure there was that. You know, we want to want to, but I just. I don't know. I just feel at some human level, I just enjoyed engaging with them, going, and their enthusiasm kind of found, I found it infectious. So it was more, I think, the uh, uh, seeing the other made me more, yes, as you said, you know, that force comes out. It made
1: mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Um, so, so continue uh, taking us on this journey. You are at Stuart Hall. You are in high school at this women's college. And then hey, you get to apply to college. You know, what, what happens? So in college, I was supposed to go back to India, but then I
0: said, okay, I'll, I loved college years because they have all kinds of choices for courses and teachers and so forth. Uh, but again, keep in mind in the 70s, uh, I graduated from Wellesley in 78. Uh, there was not much on South Asia. There was really yeah. nothing much on India. So religion was the department which offered anything on Asia, Asian religions and so forth. So I took a course with, um, I still remember Ms. Nold and there she came, and I was taking something on uh, Asian religions, and she sat on the table and just recited Om, and it was just so mesmerizing. And I think I got into that. And then we have art; we had a very good professor, and English. So I love these courses, and uh-huh. so I, I love those years. Freedom, freedom to take anything I want, and freedom. Like in school, we had to go to class. And we had to do this here. You didn't have to, you know. <laughs> that, that was <laughs> so. I remember a friend of mine saying, "Nick, we pay so much for each class; we better not miss it." So I still remember those times. Um, at Colby, I kind of relive that life. You know, things that I love: reading Plato for the first time, uh, or doing poetry. You know, somehow in in the American classroom, the analysis and so forth, the freedom to choose your topics. That that's what was very very encouraging, and so forth.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when you were taking these religious studies courses, or even English and and philosophy courses, you know, you you came from this this place where you, I, I mean, I'm curious to know if at the time you were conscious of the false consciousness you were experiencing. But by the time, you know, you're in college, did you feel that any of the material Um, that focused, for example, on South Asia uh, or India more specifically, did you feel that it was being filtered through some sort of Western lens?
0: I I think I may have been too young to notice it at that time. But what I did was I wanted, I had that kind of urge to study more and more. Mm -hmm. And that's what I found at Wellesley. The faculty gave me the, what should I say, the opportunity to do it. So I remember doing something on Heidegger with uh, in an independent study course with Stadler. She's a very eminent professor. And the encouragement they gave me to take it on, to see things from my perspective was mm-hmm. really amazing. And then for my honors thesis, I did it with Lucetta Maury. I don't know if she's quite an eminent New Testament scholar. Um, mm-hmm. With her, I did something on Sikhism, an independent study. And she said, she very clearly admitted it. Nikki, I don't know anything about the Sikh world, but I would love to learn from you.
1: Hmm.
0: Getting that kind of freedom. To, and, and that's what really, what I do today, after all those years, after decades from Wellesley, it's still going back to my basic thesis, my honors thesis at Wellesley that I wrote, Physics and Metaphysics of the Guru Granth which was all, as you say, it was all filtered through Western lenses. you know, the way they translated, it was all the men, because the way at that time I received my scholarship was through these colonialists who taught English to the Sikh theologians. That's how they inherited it. And that's how they brought it to me. And so I read it from their lenses. Very patriarchal very colonial very thousand these that kind of archaic biblical language that i inherited but that's what i used in okay. those days so that time i wasn't aware of it um i just i was so keen on just studying the Sikh scripture and what whatever was mine the indian you know the Sikh world that i had left far back in india so that next step came in graduate school
1: okay so you're you're very much brought up in the small liberal arts world where you are encouraged to take courses on your own terms and, you know, really have close relationships with faculty and develop your own opinions and be in conversation. So then what happens? So that's what I loved. And I really enjoyed
0: it very, very much. And Wellesley gave me something remarkable. And then, unfortunately, I go to UPenn and it wasn't quite that way. <laughs> but anyway, I transferred quickly to uh, Temple um, and I was very happy there. But in 1984, I went to the AAR, mm-hmm. met in Chicago. And that's where I heard Mary Daly, uh, you know, issues the um, who else was there? Naomi Goldenberg, uh, Rita Gross, all these um, Judith Plaskow, all these Christian and Jewish feminists. Mm. That was a very that that was a very critical moment for me,
1: mm. and
0: that's when I got those lenses, those feminist lenses, those liberational lenses, and then I started seeing how that Westernization, whatever that consciousness that patriarchal false whatever you want to call consciousness had entered even the sikh text and that's when i started really going back re-seeing things so that's a pivotal moment for me
1: yeah i mean it's so moving to hear you um you know, go back to 1984, go back to your experience at the American Academy of Religion and name these scholars. And, and two that you named in particular, you know, are Elizabeth Schussler fiorenza and Judith Plaskow. And those are the, the founders of Feminist Studies in Religion, which has been brought about this podcast, you know, decades later. And so it's, it's so moving to hear that. Oh my gosh, I, I truly admire them. And they were so
0: encouraging. You know, my first, uh, one of the earliest papers that was published was in the JFSR. And wow. it was to do with this sick bridal imagery. And also, where would we be, Sarah, without the hermeneutics of suspicion? Mm. You know, that's what I got earlier on with Elizabeth. And then later on, when I was doing my book on the birth of the Khalsa, Plaskos uh, standing again at Mount Sinai to re-see, to re-see Uh, what happened for the Kalsa event, that book was very pivotal to me. Mm -hmm. So these are people who inspired me once upon a time and still continue to do so. I think about them and somehow my heart just kind of expands. They've been really, really remarkable.
1: Wow. So can you connect for us, um, and especially those who are not necessarily positioned within, academic field of religious studies explain you know what was it that you were studying in graduate school um, and how you know what you've brought into this space the hermeneutic of suspicion fit into that you know what were you studying and how do you make sense of the hermeneutic of suspicion in relation to what you were studying i have been studying
0: i am studying and i will be studying sikh scripture that's a secret text of the six. It's a 1430 portfolio page volume. That is everything for the six.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's uh it's a Bible for the six, but this is, this is also kind of a person, so to say. So how do the six get married? This book is at the center and the couple circle it four times. And by, you know, bowing their heads, that is that they accept each other. So there are no no vows uh, declared, nothing. It's really the holy book. This is everything for the Sikhs. So when somebody dies, readings from the Sikh scripture take place. What is Sikh worship? You go pay homage to the holy book. So this is the center of Sikh ceremonies, Sikh rituals, Sikh rites of passage. This is where uh, the tradition gets its philosophy, its aesthetics, its ethical code. And all of it is poetry. It's beautiful poetry. It's by the Sikh gurus. It is also, it also includes Hindu saints and Sufis. So it's a very inclusive text. A lot of authors, um, covers a lot of languages, a mm. uh, lot of Indian regions.
1: This sounds like it was written by, you know, not just many authors, but over you know, a massive period of time. Several centuries, and it was compiled
0: in 1604. Okay. And that's when it was enshrined and put in the Golden Temple of Modern Times. Okay. Which is sort of the Vatican for the Sikhs in Amritsar. So this is a text, uh, but it covers, you know, several authors and, right. um, you know, several centuries. So that's what I work on. And it's all poetry. And uh, so, so um, if I were to, will I give you the gist of it? Yes, of the- please. please. So here it is 1430 pages. For me, the opening, ik on It's literally numeral one. So it's the divine reality, which is expressed one being is, that's it. One being, and it's literally numeral one. So in that numeral one, you can tap any any idea, relationship that you conceive. This one is infinite. So it can be Yahweh, Jesus. It can be the goddess Durga. It can be Lord Ram. It can be Krishna. It really doesn't matter because that one is all space, all time, beyond gender, beyond cause, everything. So that's the one, and this one can be expressed in million ways, and that's what the whole book is about. And at the end, the epilogue, which is created, which was was uh, expressed by the compiler guru, calls it a dish, a platter. So this whole volume, this book, is a platter, big dish, on which three things are placed. Three. Different dishes are placed on this big tray. And those three dishes are sat, which is truth, knowledge, sat. santok, which is contentment, serenity. The third one is vichar, which is reflection, which takes place when we are sitting together and we are thinking about things with fellow beings. So that's what it is. So this is the beginning is one reality. That's it. And the end is this is a platter, and these are the dishes, and and it's not adequate that we simply eat them. That's not it. But we must savour these dishes. Jacob, Jacob Punche, Tista Hoy udharo. So real liberation, real freedom comes with savouring these dishes. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing about the sensuousness, the the tasting is very crucial. So, how do these fit in? Whenever any translation of Sikh scripture would say, There is one God. And in my earlier ones, that's what I did say too. When once you read Mary Daly and others, you realize God is not being, B E I N G, as Mary Daly says, you know. So, instead of that very noun and kind of uh, static things, I started. You know, these these feminist thinkers are very, very crucial for me to kind of resee and kind of this patriarchal word that we had just internalized, absorbed for all those mm-hmm. years. So it makes me go back to those same texts and resee see them, resee see them. And it's so much fun and joy and liberating, Sarah, to see yeah. the openness that's there in the original. But it is stifled not only in the translations, not only in the English translations, but also in the exegetical and, you know, what the what the scholars do, what the interpreters do. So I feel the the originality of the text has been lost over the centuries, mm-hmm. and we need to kind of, you know, use our own feminist consciousness, liberation lenses to re see it. Mm-hmm.
1: So, so I, what I hear you saying is, you know, you are, you are a scholar of these texts, and um, you were brought up seeing these texts as having a particular kind of meaning or essence that was brought to you by primarily white male scholars. And this hermeneutic of suspicion brought on by feminists help you say, okay, what else can we say about these texts? What, what might be missing from these interpretive histories?
0: Exactly. But I also want to say that it's not just the white men, but this is how we in India, Victorian, how English was taught in those schools. Mm. You know, it was it, it was the uh, Bible is the first uh, text that was translated. So it came mm. through that uh, angle that even the people, the scholars, the Indian scholars, the brown scholars themselves absorbed it mm. and they are the ones translating. So you, you see it step by step. So that's how it came. And uh, so that's what I absorbed. And then the, uh, you know, hermeneutics of suspicion, you kind of go back and you reread those texts, you read the original and you see that's not quite it. God is, you know, it's not quite, if, if it's numeral one, how would God fit in with that? This is, it's literally numeral, numeral one. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you know, there's no he, she either. And then always to make it into a he, it's just, we're very scared of a kind of polytheism or kind of giving it a gender, but we are giving it a body image then if you mm-hmm. make it a he. It's, it's mm-hmm. a very, very androcentric
1: uh, interpretations mm-hmm. that have dominated uh, six yeah. of- It's so interesting how you're bringing into um, this yeah. conversation embodiment because I hear from the text embodiment, but not in a gendered sense, not in a sex sense, in a, you know, it's bringing in the body with regards to taste and absorb, you know, absorbing something, but not in the ways that has been done in its interpretive histories. Absolutely. And and, and not only that, the
0: body is kind of shrugged aside. Whenever you read the text, it says mantan, man is mind and tan is body. One should remember the divine one, mantan. Always mind, body go together and you look at translations, the body gets erased. The mind stays. Huh. Isn't that interesting? Yes. So somehow this kind of uh, somatophobia, you know, Elizabeth Gross is the one who yes. kind of did it an and anal- diagnosed it. That's what is retained. And somehow the other, even even images, people are very scared of, you know. Because... So anything to do with the tasting and smelling and anything to do with the real sensuous, Experience of the divine is shrugged aside, hmm. and that's what's really bothers me. You know, like again, it's very Platonic world. You know, the ideal form, yes. the isness of the rose—that's what counts. And these particular roses are ignored, and that's my whole angle now to show how the body, how the material, how the world here is very important. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. you know, Grace Janssen was very important to me for that world, you know, instead of what is necrophilic worldview where everything is after death and the heavens out there and we miss out what's happening here and now. So I want, and Guru Nanak and the and the poetry itself, the scripture itself is always, you know, talking about the very tangible, the material, the here and the now. And, and that's being ignored and not even in the, in the, when commentators are uh, presenting all these you know very male voices are giving public speeches and so forth love gets converted into fear and that experience personal experience becomes something totally other it's it's a real aberration of mm-hmm. of the text so to me it, it's really vital that we get hold of the text
1: yeah i i'm hearing you say you know to really get at what the text is saying about, um, you know, the here and the now and the and the material and um, the beauty within that. And, you know, this, this is one of those interviews where I'm interviewing someone that, you know, I spent time with, you know, I, I feel, you know, I know you, I know who you are, I have been in, you know, the, the room that you're sitting in, uh, you know, in your home, and you You know, I feel that from you and I felt that from you, that you live, you live and love and give uh, with such vibrancy and earnestness. And so I wonder, you know, does your study of Sikhism and your understanding of it in this way shape who you are? Absolutely.
0: I think so, because to me, it's like what I do, what I scholarship and this is all, Together, I mean, one of my favorite verses in sixth scripture is penandhya, Mukti Mukti is liberation. So salvation or liberation is not attained elsewhere. It is attained while, I mean, this is a scriptural verse, holy book. This is what it says. laughing, kilandia, playing, kavandia, eating, pannandia, dressing up. So these are, and, and the Sikh tradition really does not divorce the sacred from the secular. The secular and the sacred are totally mm-hmm. combined. We speak these things. We, we theorize these, but we need to practice it because it was at the everyday level that the That's gurus were speaking about. So I think, you know, I mean, we, we cannot separate the text from our lives. And I I live what I, you know, it's, it's, it's a lovely life. You know, this is liberation is while being with friends and while dressing up and teaching and doing your duties, but you remember the one. And that's, what's important that oneness has to be remembered Mm -hmm. because otherwise, and that's, that's where the Sikh tradition, as it evolves in uh, medieval India, uh, the Mughal empire is just being established. Hinduism has always been there. And when religions come together, things can be very threatening. So people are becoming very orthodox and so forth. And so Guru Nanak, the founder of the tradition, historically, geographically, culturally, comes in between these and pronounces the divine as one. What are we fighting about? Why divisions? Why caste divisions? And so caste is very crucial. It it has been a category for centuries in India. And I'm so glad um, the new book by Isabel Wilkerson on caste, she takes the title from India. so It's a Portuguese word, but the caste system has been very, very much part of India and the Sikh guru inherited it. So it was to kind of cast, cast aside that he, his whole message is all about, you know? Mm. So, uh, because that creates divisions, divisions, Hierarchies between people, gender, sexualities, and it was really the oneness that he wanted to see. The oneness is out there, and that oneness needs to be translated into the everyday practical world. And we, we Sikhs, I have to admit, we, we talk about one God, but we don't quite practice that oneness in everyday yeah.
1: life. I'm, I, what I'm hearing you say is, you know, oneness doesn't mean um, a lack of plurality. You know, you can have multiplicity and plurality within a sense of a
0: one. That's crucial, Sarah. You, you hit the nail on its head. Absolutely. Because it's not, actually, it's not even universal. It's pluriversal. Because there are so many different, and they're all all equal. So mm-hmm. it's really, he was a very pluralistic, the origins of the Sikh tradition are extremely pluriversal, mm-hmm. very pluralistic. And that's why the whole text has so many different musical measures, Uh, So it could be sung, it's kind of very aesthetic, you know, so it's, there's no one way. And and Hinduism, it's accepted. Hinduism, that's why the whole text, the whole holy volume has the Islamic worldview, which was very different from the Sikh worldview, and which is very different from the Hindu worldview, polyphonic, monotheistic, all these are part of, you know, that's, it's really, really pluralistic. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's very, the text is very relevant to our world today, such a dangerously divided and polarized world. It has Mm -hmm. a lot to offer. But I also think, and I think you just mentioned it a while ago, about the aesthetic. Sometimes we really make religion, we divorce. I mean, this comes from Kierkegaard and so forth. uh, You know, there is religion and then we have ethics and aesthetics is put at the bottom rung of, you know, our philosophy, however you want to distinguish it, all these are categorized. You know, if if I say there's one reality, if I don't experience that one reality, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. So instead, and and Guru Nanak was more from, instead of doctrine and belief, it's really the feeling that's most important. Mm -hmm. You have to really live that. That's what makes, that's what Sikhism for me is. You know, after all, as I said, what is the holy book? It's a dish. On, you know, it's a tray on which these things are placed. These dishes have to be tasted. They have to be made a part of your bloodstream. Yes. You have to digest it, what you yes. learn and what you practice. So it has to be a part of you. And uh, it comes out
1: as an emotion. It yes. comes out as an embrace. Yes, a lived, always in moving, action, feeling. Uh-huh. Exactly, and
0: moving, flux. It's yes. not eternity. Sometimes everybody, oh, God is eternal. You know, the truth is eternal. There's no such thing as eternity. There's temporality. Truth is timeless. Past, present, future, it's now. And it's really the intersection of the timelessness with time that makes everything so exciting. Mm. The moment is very special. This moment, seeing you there, whom I so adore, um, is, is, is
1: really is, is really one, it's a magical moment. I can I, I just, I love what you're saying about, you know, how everything is interconnected, you know, always already. I can hear in how you speak and what you say, your work uh, and feelings for religious studies, Sikhism, philosophy, poetry, it's all, it's all there in, in how you are making sense of the world it's also you Sarah you're very special in in
0: creating the synergy and creating the synesthesia you know where you connect things
1: you're kind you're so kind um I never felt you know so adored you know in such a earnest you know honest you know way you know as I was at Colby not adored in sort of like putting on a pedestal but just like you know just just cared for um, and the feeling is mutual.
0: I want to underscore that. You know, uh, it, it, sometimes we, things make make things too high up, but mm-hmm. that's not it. We have to bring it, make things familiar. Yes. And yeah. that's what we want the text, this holy text, instead of being a holy text, sitting, uh, you know, all draped in silks and brocades and being in a sacred space. I want people to pick up translations and read it. Mm-hmm. I want it to be read as poetry. And I might get into trouble because if I say, oh, it's poetry, oh no, this is Gurbani, it's Guru's word. I sometimes get, you know, uh, scholars have told me I was getting something published in a journal in India and this editor said, could you please change poet- poetry to Gurbani? To me, poetry is very important. Yeah. You know, so to me, the the sacred is by making, by familiarizing ourselves, by making yeah. it a part of ourselves.
1: Yeah, that, that's taking me to sort of, I, I have a two-pronged, Question for you, Um, and and this will sort of take us to the the close of our um, interview together. Um, But for those who are, you know, completely new to um, Sikhism, and I recognize that this is, you know, a very unfair question of um, an academician. But if you know you're 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 wanting to to sort of explain. Um, to someone fully new to this philosophy, this religion, whatever you want to call it, this movement, the first part of the question is, what is Sikhism? Is it an is? I mean, you know, what? How would you explain Sikhism to someone who is completely new to the conversation? And the second part to the question is, in thinking about Sikhism and all of its various forms, you know, you, you've spoken quite a bit about its liberative qualities, uh, but then at the end of, you know, your last explanation of, you know, you're trying to get this, this journal article published in India, and they wanted you to, um, you know, not use the word poetry. Is Sikhism a fully liberative movement? Is it embedded and infused, you know, in and with patriarchy? Yeah, so, so sort of, to make it simpler, what is Sikhism, and what is the relationship between feminism and Sikhism? Okay, the first question is, what is
0: Sikhism? Uh, Sikhism is a tradition that began in medieval India with Guru Nanak, founder of the tradition, 1469 to 1539, those are his dates. And it's really his vision of one reality. There's only one reality. And that to me sums up the tradition and it has what, um, I would say more than 25 million Sikhs worldwide. So it is a major world religion. And it's very sad that people don't know much about it. And Mm -hmm. the Sikhs were the first ones to come to America. So Mm -hmm. it's been very prominent, very, very present. And uh, so this is the tradition.
1: I have to insert real quick for those who are familiar with the term world religions, because I think that that is a a well-known term. And yet, you know, what constitutes, or are, are a major world religion, what constitutes major? You know, we, we call certain traditions, quote unquote, major, and yet Sikhism, 25 million? At least. Yeah. At least. You know, why, who created the, you know, what is in and what is out of these terms? You know, major world religion. So I'm glad that you said that. 25, at least, million Sikhs in the world, um, right. and many people know nothing about it. So... Okay, sorry about that. I just had to to get yeah. that out there.
0: Basically, it's religion with one reality, one one divine figure, and it's very inclusive. And um, as I said, the, all of the worship ceremonies uh, revolve around the scripture. That's it. It's a book. It's a, it's really the religion of the book, if one were to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that Sikhism. Does that answer, or do you want me to? Do sure. More? Yeah.
1: Uh, if if there's anything else you feel that needs to be said, but you're you're the expert here, so.
0: So it starts with Guru Nanak in 1469 and the 10th Guru. So it has uh, 10 living Gurus and the 10th was Guru Gobind Singh. And uh, he was born in 1666 and he passed away in 1708. And before he passed away, he made the scripture, the Guru forever. Mm
1: -hmm. So for
0: the six, this is kind of the Guru,
1: corporeal Guru. And so what would you say constitutes a guru? How does one become a guru? What is a guru? Uh, no, that's a very, very tough question, Sarah. Uh, <laughs>
0: basically, um, Guru Nanak is the founder. For the six, it's like the 10 gurus. Um, basically, it's a teacher. But the way Guru Nanak explains it in the inaugural hymn, which is the Japji, is Guru Isar, Gur Gorak, Barma Gurpar, but the guru can be... Any 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 scripture the guru can be any figure the guru is somebody who opens up opens your consciousness Mm. awakens you so it's a very kind of a cognitive aesthetic
1: ethical kind of an awakening. So I hear you say a guru can be a non-human. Can a guru be a text? Can a guru be a tree? Can you know?
0: Sorry. So anything that's Guru Nanak's definition which is in the scripture. For the Sikhs, the guru, uh, the 10 gurus, these are the spiritual teachers, so to say, guides. Mm -hmm. Those are historic gurus. And those were 10 from Guru Nanak to Guru Gobind Singh. And the 10th is the one who made the book, the guru forever. So these are kind of historic entities for the Sikhs. But the way Guru Nanak defines guru, guru is an awakening. Guru Mm -hmm. is something that, you know, knowledge is always there. Mm-hmm. who awakens us it's okay. a guru how does it come about it can come through an idea it can come through a text it can come through a musical note so that would be the guru where
1: are there gurus in the tradition now sort of after no. the 10 no. no one else can be a guru no the book is the guru okay,
0: okay. got the it book, so that's why the book is so central to seek worship to seek ceremonies to seek life The the book is everything. So that's the... um, I heard that uh, they were bringing some copies um, of the holy book to Canada and they booked a whole plane to keep the book on each... It's considered to be a personality. Wow. There's a lot of respect. Yeah. I mean, the book, the way it's treated, that itself is quite uh, unique in the history of religions.
1: Yes. So this... Final text is you said canonized uh, what year? 1604. 1604. So, what is the relationship between you know Sikhism, this relationship with this text, and feminism? Okay, so then uh, what is the text?
0: The text is the poetry that's there, and to it's very open, very liberating. It's for both men and women, for everybody. I remember um, I was reading a text in one of my classes and my students, a couple of my students, oh, I like this because it gives such importance to an ant. So there's Mm -hmm. nothing high or low, everybody. So long as you have love for the divine one, that's all that matters. So it's a very kind of a, really, that love for oneness, where you do not see inequalities, where you do not have hostilities, when there's no antagonism. Kind of, it's the one is borderless. Boundaryless, you know that's that's what the text is all about, and so feminism is kind of uh, it's all there to see it. There's so much significance given to the female, to the woman's body. You will not find anywhere else where any holy text where it says, uh, "Where would one be without menstrual blood? Where would one find the womb? Womb is a special place." spiritual place where there is no caste there's no class guru nanak this is this is where the divine hand is you know so the woman's body the woman's womb you know where life starts is given such you know it's exalted Uh, if i were to read a translation or even an exegesis that's converted womb is converted into a stomach now, isn't it kind of ignoring the the female sexuality, the female body, the female power? So such things are ignored, but the text is somehow the commentators and the translators and the interpreters are somehow yeah. unable to really grasp that openness, that liberty, that feminist lens that is there in the text itself.
1: Yeah, I. I'm so, I just find this so fascinating and I'm learning so much because, you know, this is our second episode on um, feminist liberationist uh, lenses. And our first episode actually was conducted at Colby College uh, with Drs. Tracy West and Cynthia Chapman. And, um, you know, Dr. West is an ethicist, Dr. Chapman is a, a biblicist. And you know, I'm thinking, you know, because I too am a biblicist, I'm thinking about the starting point of feminist um readings of the Bible. And the starting point is to say the Bible is patriarchal. And then what do we go from there? Do we want to find ways to liberate it? Do we or is the liberation saying, hey, this this is patriarchal? It was written in a patriarchal world by folks who were patriarchal and its interpretive histories have often been patriarchal. You know, is that is saying that. The, the liberative piece or is you know doing something different, finding a way to save the text, the liberating piece. But what I'm hearing from you is sort of like a flipping of scripts that the text itself is liberative and liberating and feminist and the interpretations have been patriarchal. And so part of the feminist movement is to say, let's actually look at what's here um, and what has happened from the here to the now or from the then to the now. I see it that way.
0: I've been working very uh, closely with Guru Nanak's poetry. I, I really find it very liberating. Also the times, you know, this is the medieval time. He saw a lot of pressure. So he is a radical voice. He is a progressive voice, Mm -hmm. so he is opening up. But unfortunately, the society still had the lenses and the habits, the intellectual and the religious or the cultural from from time immemorial to break away those lenses has been hard. So the exegesis within and without the scholars from abroad, from outside Western, whatever you want to say, somehow the other things have only compounded. The patriarchy has only compounded. And we also have to keep in mind the history of the Sikh world. You know, Maharaja Ranjit Singh with Sikh, the Sikhs become an empire and many of the customs and the worldview, and then with colonial, India, the Sikhs were very close to the British. They were their great, you know, a, a kind of a hyper masculinity comes into the Sikh world. Mm-hmm. So, so, those things kind of, instead of really seeing the original, we have made it more patriarchal and androcentric over the centuries. Me, that's why to me it's really, let's just go to the text, let's yeah. read the text. Let's have new translations of the text. Not only that, why is it when we go to the Sikh um, Gurdwaras, that's a sacred word. Why is somebody always leading happens to be a man?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, that also takes place in public spaces. Whereas there is no priesthood in the Sikh world, no priesthood in the Sikh world. And yet you go to any Sikh sacred space and you will 99 percent of the time you will see a male reading the text. So it's their lips that read the text. It's their hands that, you know, come closest to the text. So it's the male body that's always in um, close proximity with the text. And, you know, and and there's um, the person who would be equivalent of the Pope in the Sikh world was a good friend of my father's. So he used to visit my dad quite a lot. And I would talk to him and I would say, you know, why, why aren't more women uh, being, you know, readers in... Sikh Gurdwaras and Sikh temples. And the answer invariably was, oh, the oh. women don't want to, little one. He used to call me little one. The women don't want to. So um, it's just it's just assumed, you know, It's these are kind of assumptions yeah. that uh, women don't want to lead. And uh, I mean,
1: what do you make of the fact, though, that these 10 gurus were men? You know, yeah, and, and, and what do you make of the fact that, you know, I'm... I'm I mean, who knows? I know that this text had many authors and over you know many centuries. But I'm, my my assumption is that most, if not all, of the authors were men.
0: You're what very know, that is true of that. Yes, that that is very true. That is very absolutely right. The authors are all men, and uh, the guruship passed from male to male to male. That's very very true. Uh, but does not mean there. There, I think um, it does not mean that it's closed. It has to be like that forever. You see, that that is a fact of history. We cannot change history. You know, Mm -hmm. but the the guru, the present guru, is the text.
1: And so, what does the text say? Mm. I love it. This reminds me of you know sort of like post-structuralist death of the author. You know, like like the text has a life of itself, and you know once once it filters through different readers or filters through different modalities or just lives in the world outside of the authorship, it, it, it has a being of its own. And especially this text where, where it's a guru forever. Yes. You know, so this is, this is,
0: this is the teacher. The, those were there, but this is what we have. But, but you also have to get, these are Sufis and Hindu bhagats and the voice is there. Mm-hmm. And how we interpret it. And there's a very beautiful verse in uh, Sikh scripture, only the person who appreciates the flower, the rose, knows the rose. So to know the know, knowledge is very important, but the knowledge comes through reading the text, seeing the text, feeling the text. And everybody is equal to do that. It does not say there are no rules or regulations in this text, Sarah. There are no do's and don'ts don't do this or don't do that nowhere and yet the religion is made into don't do this and don't do that Mm -hmm. it's it's it's, it just defeats the purpose of that you know the openness that's there yeah that it gives every individual and 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 how it is related with the cosmos you know it's a i just did a book on guru nanak how he's an environmentalist how he's a feminist how he's for human rights all those things are there because it's a reservoir. It's how we interpret the text. Mm-hmm. It's all poetry, so it's you know there are no nothing prosaic about it. Yeah, lenses so the, are very important. The feminist lenses or whatever the how we see, how we read, how we filter through that's crucial.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I um, I'm thinking you know again back to the conversation with um, Dr. West and Dr. Chapman and. Um, you know, one of the things that they were discussing, you know, was this question with regards to, um, you know, feminist liberationist lenses, is, you know, liberating for who? You know, like who gets to say, and in what sense is one thing liberating for, for someone, and yet is one person's liberation oppressing someone else? And it sounds to me that when you bring conversation of liberation to the text, that's sort of always already part of the question because it's all about plurality within the one. So it's not, it, it just at least sounds to me that there's no end point of saying, oh yes, this is liberating for this person and who cares if it's oppressing someone else? It's, it's always there. It's always asking further. It's always asking the question of, I, I'm not sure how to- You said it, Sana. That That's exactly it is. There is no end
0: to it. This is freedom, you know, and it's freedom for everybody, whoever reads it whoever comes in its presence. So that's why I think to read it, that's all I want. It's not, so we make it too holy, you know, it's holy sitting up somewhere. I want it just, everybody should, it should be available in bookstores and just pick up and see what you make of it. A translation that's really correct, you know, that goes with the text rather than kind of a, you know, patriarchal androcentric, uh, the way I inherited the translations when I first, when I worked on the six scripture then undergrad.
1: That's a great place to sort of wrap up. I mean, do you have your, have you offered a translation of this? Where can our listeners find your translation? Well, uh, I did one uh, with Penguin, uh, actually with Harper Collins many years
0: ago. And that was uh, republished by Penguin India. And they brought it out last year as well. But right now I'm doing uh, a translation with, Harvard University Press on Guru Nanak's poetry. So that should be out hopefully within a year or so. But in the meantime, the Penguin book is quite good, Hymns of the Sikh Gurus.
1: Okay, Hymns of the Sikh Gurus. I hope listeners will will pick that up and learn. I, I, I love what you said. You know, let's, let's bring this. I mean, it was meant to be lived, right? That's part of the, the point of it, to live it, to taste it, to feel it. Let's do that. Exactly. Thank you, Sarah. Exactly. And I hope we will. Yes. Well, Nikki Singh, I love you so much. I adore you so much. I learn from you all the time in all sorts of ways. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was such a pleasure to talk with you.
0: The honor and the joy is all mine. Thank you, Sarah. You are so gracious. All my love and
1: every good wish. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Feminist Talk Religion, a feminist studies and religion collaboratory branch project. Feminist Studies and Religion works to center and connect feminists and religious studies through its various platforms, including a journal, books, blog, and lab. We appreciate your engagement with FSR's branches, especially with the last podcast and would love your financial support. You can donate at www.fsrin org/donate. We wish to express our thanks to all who have contributed to the Feminist Talk Religion podcast. Special appreciation goes to Nayada Leo, Oluwatinisin Uradain, Elise Ambrose, Sarah Emanuel, Midori Hartman, and Susan Wooliver for their leadership and committee efforts. Thanks goes to Gabby Guerrero for her editorial work, Thomas Lejoie and Scott Jackson for creating the music used for this podcast, and Kimmy Monte, Christy Cobb, and Owen Cobb for their creative work on the intro dialogue. Thanks also goes to the interns at Feminist Studies and Religion Inc for their work on promoting this project.